Well, happy February, everybody. We made it through the first, the first month went like fast, didn't it? How many of you feel like the first month just like flew by, man? Been busy, been a lot of things going on. Um, you can see we're a little uh, light in attendance today. We've got a uh, couple of families that are out with illnesses. We've got some families that are traveling and, and having fun, um, but uh, we pray for all of them. Of course, um, I'm disappointed that the uh, McCullums weren't here. I mean, I don't know what's going on with them. No. Uh, I uh, did get an update yesterday. We sent out an email uh, through Easy Tithe Plus yesterday about, uh, the, about uh, James and mom and family. Um, I think they're hoping that James will be able to come home tomorrow, uh, if not, then on Tuesday. But apparently his lungs are getting stronger. They are... Um, decreasing the amount of oxygen they're they're kind of loosening things up a little bit and he's been stable so uh, continue if you would to pray for them so I have a question for you how many of you have ever heard of the infinite monkey theorem anybody ever heard of the infinite monkey theorem this is the infinite monkey theorem. It goes like this. A monkey hitting key, keys at random on a typewriter keyboard for an infinite amount of time will almost surely type any given text, including the complete works of William Shakespeare. Have you ever heard that theorem? Does it kind of ring a bell now? So this is the theory that if, he, if, if a monkey sits at a typewriter for long enough, it will be able to type out the works of William Shakespeare. This theorem is attributed to a French mathematician, Emile Borel. Uh, he said in, in uh, 1931 that this has to be true. And I kind of I wonder, I mean, yeah, I mean, if given an infinite amount of time, possibly, right? But the good news is that the mathematicians are working on the problem because that's what we want to spend our time on, right? try to figure this out. And there are several studies that have concluded that there is a 1 in 156 billion chance that a monkey pounding away at a keyboard can in fact type a single random word. And as for writing the complete works of Shakespeare, they did this study as well in 2014. They ran a computer. Instead of having the monkeys actually sit there and type because they weren't being very cooperative, uh, we ran a computer simulation in 2014. And uh, they did some various things, various findings. And they found that this digital monkey typed this. At random. This, and, and what they discovered is that Valentine and Cease are the first two words of the two gentlemen of Verona by William Shakespeare. So the monkey is well on its way. <laughs> and the, the, the computer simulation showed that if we only would give this computer-generated monkey 42 octillion years, it could type the works of William Shakespeare. That's 42 followed by 27 zeros, and yes, I counted them out, I hope. And Wendy will look at that slide later and say, you know what, there's only 26. <laughs> or your finger hit a couple times too many, there's like 28 there. But I want you to remember this number, 42 octillion. 
okay? And then the other number that I said, the one in 156 billion. These are important numbers this morning. There's gonna be a test later, so hopefully you are paying attention. I'll give them to you one more time. One in, fi one in 156 billion, 42 octillion. All right, so <laughs> this spring, we are going to be uh, following a sermon series called God on Trial. And we're exploring the way that God and God's children have been kind of indicted throughout history. Uh, people talk about God in the Bible and they talk about him in certain ways that are either offensive or just plain wrong. Um, and of course they talk about us. And sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they might be more right than we want to admit. But we're going to kind of talk about these things and we want to talk about these modern day accusations. Um, and as we get closer to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at the indictments against Jesus leading up to his arrest and his death on the cross. And we're also going to kind of put those in kind of a modern light to look at the modern ways that people kind of bring those same indictments against Christianity. But we're going to take a look at indictment number one. And indictment number one says, God did not create everything. As a matter of fact, we could say, some people will say, God did not create anything. This is the first indictment. Now, of course, um, another thing that kind of goes along with that is basically that the universe itself has no creator. Whether it's God or, or something else, there is nothing, there is, there's nothing that created the universe. It just happened. So this is kind of what we're kind of taking a look at. And of course, if you believe in God and you believe that uh, what is written in the Bible, we believe that God created everything in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And we hear this over and over and over throughout Scripture about God creating the heavens and the earth. And throughout Genesis 1, we read that God created light. He created earth, the mountains, and the rivers, and the oceans, the plants, the animals. He created the sun, and the moon, and the stars. He created time in Genesis chapter 1. And ultimately, he created us. He created human beings in his image. And we believe this. Because if we don't believe it, if we don't know this to be true, then our Christian faith is worthless. And we said that last week. Our Christian faith is worthless if we don't believe that God created everything. But atheists don't believe that God created everything, and in fact, they don't believe that he created anything. There are a lot of atheists who will give the argument, the indictment, that the universe came from nothing. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this guy, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking's the preeminent scientist of the 20th and early 21st century. He was considered the smartest man alive. And Stephen Hawking is quoting as, as saying this. He says, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. He says, spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. Aha. We have found some common ground with Mr. Hawking. Mr. Hawking says spontaneous creation is the reason. And yes, we believe that. We believe that God spoke the universe into existence spontaneously. His words created everything. 
So this we agree with. But, Mr. Hawking goes on, he says, it is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Now, I don't know how many of you are scientists. Any, any people like science in here? I ask this of my students all the time. No, I hate science. But one of the basic ideas in science is that matter exists. We agree that matter exists. Matter is the things that everything is made of. We, we agree that those exist, right? What Stephen Hawking is saying is that at one time, matter didn't exist. And it just spontaneously came about with no help from anything. So my question for you is this, and this is a question that you can ask a non-believer if they approach you with this argument. And the question is this, is it possible? Do you honestly believe that it's possible that something came from nothing without some sort of outside supernatural. Supernatural simply means outside of nature. Supernatural occurrence to make it happen. That's the question that we have. And as we share with people the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, one of the things that we know about Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 1, is that he was in the beginning, and through him... All things were created. So we got to ask this question. And we can ask the question, is it possible that a supernatural being, we won't even talk about God yet. We'll talk about, is, is it possible that something outside of nature caused creation to happen? And we can ask the opposite question. Is it possible that the universe was created out of nothing? And we can start talking about this idea with somebody who doesn't believe. Because if we can help to convince them that their logic is faulty, if we can help to convince them that it's not possible, that matter comes from nothing, it had to have some sort of a cause. Something had to be there first then we can start taking the next step to helping them see that that cause was God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who were all together at creation. So we ask the question, is it possible that the universe that we live in proceeded from nothing? Or we can ask it this way, how likely is it that our universe formed randomly out of nothing in order to support life as we know it? And that's a question that scientists have been trying to answer. And you remember those numbers that I gave you before? One in 156 billion, 42 quadrillion years? The physicist, scientist, Lee Smolin has calculated the odds that our universe, the one that we live in, would create this Earth that is able to support our life he, he did the calculations. He came up with this estimate. He said that the chance of our lives coming into existence is 1 in 10 to the 229th power. 
That's one, that's 10, sorry, followed by 229 zeros. That's the likelihood that spontaneous creation created us. Is it possible? Atheist, is it possible that what you believe about the creation of the universe is not accurate? Is it possible? And we don't have to prove anything at this point. Just answer one question. Is it possible? One, I'm sorry, 10 to the 229th power. And an atheist will look at you and say, well, you're telling me there's a chance. But that is intellectually dishonest. And we want to ask these questions of these people. And of course, as we've said all throughout this series, we want to do it with gentleness and respect. We want to give the person we're speaking of the dignity that they deserve. And this is a problem with a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians want to go on the attack. A lot of Christians want to kind of pound things into people's heads. And they want to just argue and fight. And we want to be right. And we don't really care about the person that we're dealing with, that we're talking to. We need to be gentle and we need to be respectful. Because with dignity, we acknowledge the other person and we acknowledge their right to believe what they believe. We acknowledge that. We also, believe, we also acknowledge the argument that they're making. How many of you have ever said something and somebody came back at you and, and it just felt like they were completely like obliterating everything you said? They didn't even consider anything that you were saying. How does that feel? To me, it feels not really great. I feel attacked. And I certainly am going to shut down from talking to that person again. But I want to give this person dignity. We want to acknowledge that they have the right to question whether God exists. They have that right. That was a right that I was told I didn't have from inside the church when I was growing up. You're not supposed to question anything about God. But with dignity, we acknowledge their right to ask questions. We treat them as fellow human beings. And we say, through our actions, that we love them. That's really what we're saying. We love you enough that we want to have this conversation with you. And I might not be the one to convince you of the truth. That might be 15 people down the road. That may be 150 people down the road. And it certainly is not going to happen without the Holy Spirit. But I don't want to be the person that shuts them off from asking their questions. Jesus was the same way. Jesus asked a lot of questions. And people would come to him, they would say things to him, and he would always treat them with respect. He would always treat them with compassion. Jesus one time had a rich young man 
approach him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and the, the young man wanted to know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this person believed in God. This person believed in the eternal. But he wanted to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered his question by discussing the things the young man already knew, like we can with people that we're talking to. Jesus said, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know these things. These are the things that you know. And when we're talking with people that don't believe in God, we need to talk from a place where they know, which means we have to know, which means we might actually have to get up and go to a library or sign onto the internet and start learning about what they are saying. And that's not a bad thing. But if we want to have an intelligent conversation with them, if we want to have a persuasive conversation with them, we need to know what they're talking about. And questions are a part of that. We can ask questions of them too. But this young man is saying, young, young uh, good teacher, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, after the man said, hey, I've done all these things. I don't bear false witness, and I honor my mother and my father. I've never killed anybody. I've never stolen anything. The Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And after Jesus looked at him and loved him, he responded gently, respectfully, you lack one thing. There's only one thing that you're missing to inherit eternal life. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And we all, if we've been at church for a while, we know what happened. The rich young man walked away and he was very discouraged because he was very rich. And we take, this, we take a look at this passage and a lot of people twist this passage to say, we're all supposed to be poor. We're all supposed to give away everything. That's not what this is saying and it's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is the thing that keeps you from God the thing that keeps you from being in his presence, you got to get rid of it. That's what Jesus is saying here, and that's a sermon for another time. But Jesus gives him the answer. Does he accept the answer? No. And this is Jesus giving him the answer. Sometimes I think we feel like everybody has to listen to us. Everybody has to agree with us because we're Christians. Even Jesus couldn't convince somebody to do something that was going to give them eternal life. So take that pressure off of yourself and just answer honestly, just like Jesus did. Jesus' goal on earth was to have everybody repent and return to the Father. And that should be our goal too. But, Jesus didn't see everybody that he talked to repent. Why would we think that we're any different? The best we can do is ask questions, have conversations, and treat people gently and with respect and with dignity. So 
When we talk to people that don't believe in the existence of God or the work of his creation, we should be treating them with the dignity that God built into them. They are, they are image bearers of God. God made them, just like they made, just like God made us. So that's how we should be talking to them. We've got to look at every human being, and we've got to be willing to take the time to answer their questions. No matter how ludicrous the question is, or how ludicrous the indictment seems, the universe was created spontaneously out of nothing, to me is a ludicrous statement. And, that, and, and just from what I've learned in basic science class, and I only took science through high school, but I feel like this is a ludicrous statement. What I feel like is that atheists are trying to find anything that can keep them from believing that there is a supernatural being who had the power of creation. But I want to talk to them. I want to try to maybe show them where their thinking is a little off. Right? God doesn't exist. Universe was created randomly. So this is where I might start. Instead of trying to convince them that God exists and that the universe was created spontaneously out of nothing, I'm going to ask this question. Try this question sometime. Do you believe in objective truth? Anybody know what objective truth is? It's completely the opposite of what a lot of people believe truth is in the world today. Objective truth means that, it, that something is true no matter what. And we might hear people say, I'm living my truth. And you live your truth. That's subjective truth, and that's not what we're talking about. It doesn't exist. Truth is truth. Now, I might be living my reality based on all of the things that have happened to me. But I can only live one truth. And this is where we might start. Do you believe in objective truth? Because you seem certain that God doesn't exist. Right? You've said that. God doesn't exist. The universe came from nothing. Those seem like pretty definite statements. So it, what it sounds like to me is, you believe in objective truth. That what is true for one is true for all. All the time. And if they say no, if they say no, there is no such, such thing as objective truth, there's only subjective truth, then we could maybe use an example. If I climb to the top of the Empire State Building without a parachute or a hang glider or base jumping gear or those little things that make you look like a flying squirrel, If I go up there and I jump off, what's going to happen to me? Hopefully, they're going to say, you'll fall and you'll die. Because that's the truth. But they'll use these, these <laughs> I call them verbal gymnastics, right? Well, you could possibly hit an air pocket stream and it might float you down. What will happen if I jump off a tall building? I'm going to fall, you're going to hear a big splat, and I'm going to die. That's the truth, and it's objective, and guess what? It would happen to me, and it would happen to you. And if you don't want to believe that, try it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't say that. 
but we can help them to see the ludicrousness of their argument. No, there are objective truths. Now, if the person comes back and they say, yes, we, we, I do believe in objective truth, then we say, okay. So that's consistent with your statements, right? You have made a definite statement. You've looked at me in the eye and you've said, God does not exist. He did not create the world. The world was created out of nothing. All right, good. You believe objectively that that is the truth. So let's start from there. And let's talk about the truth of creation. Let's talk about this number. And you tell me how it's possible that with this number, you are randomly standing here talking to me. That's what we can do. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have anything. But we do have to convince them that there is objective truth. Because we believe there's objective truth. And we believe that the truth is that Jesus Christ came to die for us so that we might know the Father who created us. That's the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. He didn't say that there's this big mountain that God is at the top of and there are 47 different paths to get to him. He said, I am the way. There is one path. And I am it. And that is objectively true. It is true for everyone. These are the things that we want to encourage people to start thinking about because so many people have never really thought about it. And I'll tell you what, and, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christians haven't thought about what they believe either. And we need to start doing that. We need to start learning why we believe what we believe. We need to start exploring Scripture, we need to start praying that God and the Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us. Because the Bible says so is not a valid argument. And that was the argument I heard growing up. Well, pastor, why is this? Because the Bible said so. But that doesn't tell me anything. We want to start having these conversations. And you need to learn why you believe what you believe. And I need to learn why I believe what I believe so that I can share that belief, so that I can share that truth with the people that are searching for it. And there's a whole lot of things that we can talk about. As, as, as we get closer to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to talk about a tr uh, an idea of truth. And if you're familiar with the story, when Jesus was meeting with Pontius Pilate, Jesus talked about being the truth, and Pontius Pilate looked at him and said, what is truth? See, this idea of subjective truth isn't new. It is something that has gone on forever and forever and forever. But we want to get on the same page. There's objective truth. I have a responsibility to learn objective truth. 
Now, where do you seek for truth? That's the next question. Where do you seek for truth? And, depending on their answer, right? We can go a lot of different ways. There was somebody who answered, kind of answered that question. In an article in Forbes magazine, 2019, it said, in many ways, the human endeavor is, uh, of science is the ultimate pursuit of truth. So, they are looking to science for truth. It says, by asking the natural world and universe questions about itself, we seek to gain an understanding of what the universe is like, what the rules that govern it are, and how things came to be the way they are today. People are looking for the truth. What they're doing, though, is they're avoiding God. And they're avoiding God because God said they would avoid God. God said that they would try to find any other reason for anything on earth rather than it being God, unless, of course, we want to blame God for stuff. When we want to blame God for stuff, yeah, we, man, yeah, we believe God exists, and he's a horrible, horrible person. But the Bible tells us that people suppress the truth of God. Romans chapter 1. Oh, sorry. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth because of sin. We suppress the truth because Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They disobeyed God. They turned their backs on God. They tried to make themselves God. And they suppress the truth about God. And Paul goes on in this letter to the Romans. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. God has shown us creation. God has shown us who he is. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. We can know something of God through our study of creation, or we can deny that God created, but only one of these things is true. We can't have it both ways. And if we consider, just for a moment, that God created everything, we can see his eternal power in everything. Have you ever seen a video of a supernova exploding? When a star gets to the end of its life, it explodes in this spectacular fashion of power before it fades to nothing. We can see the eternal power of God in that explosion. We can see the eternal power of God in something as small as an atom. There have been calculations done that said that if we took a paper clip 
You know how big a paperclip is, right? If we took, a, if we took all of the atoms from a paperclip and turned those atoms into pure energy, the energy would yield the equivalent of 18 kilotons of TNT in a paperclip. We can see God's power in the atom. We can know who God is. We can know his eternal power. We can know his divine nature through his creation. And we know that this is objective truth. We know who God is. We know that he created. Now, I wouldn't whip out Romans 1 and make that the starting point for my conversation with somebody that comes up and says that they don't believe. Well, you don't believe because you're unrighteous and uh, you're just ignoring everything. No, we're not going to do that. But we can use that because we believe it to have the conversation. Right? I want to be gentle. I want to be respectful. I want to hear their arguments. I want them to hear mine. And I can only do that through gentleness and respect. And when somebody argues that the whole physical universe could be created from nothing, we should ask questions. Because it sounds at least inconsistent with the laws of physics and the laws of nature and the laws of science. At least it sounds inconsistent, if not completely ludicrous. And we should be able to ask questions about it. And we should ask questions about it. And these, dis these discussions can go for years if we wanted them to. There's so many things that we could talk about. But the goal is to show them what the truth is in gentleness and respect by helping them to see that what they are thinking, what they believe to be true, is inconsistent. And if I can just show that, and if they are intellectually honest, they're going to open their minds just that much to the possibility that God is who he says he is. And if they can open their minds that much, the Holy Spirit can get in there. And the Holy Spirit can work by himself through us, through other people. He can work. And he can bring them to the understanding that God is the truth. And we should all want that. And again, I said these, these conversations, we might be talking to these people for a long time. And sometimes it might be feeling like we're banging our heads against the wall. But don't get frustrated. God is using you. God is using your testimony. God is using the knowledge that he has given you, the abilities that he's given you, to try to help open these minds just that much. They can open their minds. They can open their hearts to Jesus Christ. Now, again, we could talk about this for, for years. We could, we could go on and on. How many of you would like to skip lunch and we could just keep talking about it? Nobody. Wow, that's really weird. We could do that, but we're not going to. If you want to go deeper, if you want to start exploring 
some of these arguments and exploring some of the ways that we can use questioning and that we can use um, all of the things we're talking about to relate to other people, to have conversations with other people. Um, Morning Hour Chapel is going to be offering a class this spring. Um, we're going to take a, a deeper dive into this thing called apologetics. Apologetics is a term that comes from the word that Peter uses um, when he says, be ready to make a defense. Defense, the Greek word for that is apologia. So we call it apologetics. And we're going we're gonna to run a class. It's going to be eight weeks. We're going to really go into a deep dive into kind of some of the arguments that are made against God, some of the things that, uh, that are talked about. We're going to talk about those in sermons at a real surface level because we just don't have the time. But we're going to kind of get a lot deeper into it in this class. We're going to start on Wednesday, April 17th. We're going to run for eight weeks until June the 5th, 6.30 to 8, up in the social hall. And anybody who is 16 years or older um, will invite for you guys to come out. Um, and we'll have more information about that coming out in a week or two through a, uh, email and through announcements. But whether you decide to join us or not, whether you decide to, to take this next step or not, it is crucial that each of us decides to be ready to give a defense for our hope in Jesus Christ. It is crucial. That is what we are here for. By providing a defense for the hope that we have, we open the hearts and minds of others. We build the kingdom of God, and that's what we should want. We should want to see people entering the kingdom of God. We are Christ's ambassadors. We represent heaven to people here on earth who don't know God. We should want to do that well. We should want to have opportunities to share our faith with other people. And I want you to pray, and I want you to study, and I want you to think about the people that come into your life every single day. And I want you to think about and pray about how can God use me to help them take one step closer to God. I don't have to get them all the way there, but can, I get, can, I, can God use me to, to help them take that one step closer? Because we know the truth that every journey starts with a single step. Can I help them take that first step? Or maybe I'm helping them take that hundredth step. Other people have come behind me and they have been doing some of the work too. And that's the exciting thing about the church. It's the exciting thing about being a child of God is that we are all working together with the common goal to see people know Jesus Christ. And I want all of us to pray and ask God how he can use us in that work. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for creating us. We thank you for the trees and the birds and the rivers and the oceans. We thank you for air to breathe. We thank you for our being. We thank you that you created us in your image so that we might know just a little bit about who you are 
just by looking at ourselves and other people. Father, we know that it is our responsibility, it is our job. Jesus Christ called us, commanded us to make disciples. He told us that it is our job as the church to introduce people to you or to at least help them to take a step towards you. And Father, we ask that you would first empower us and then embolden us and then provide us with opportunities to make a defense for the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. The hope that says, if we repent, if we ask you to forgive our sins, that you will forgive our sins. You will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and you will adopt us into your family and allow us to live forever with you in the kingdom. That is our hope. Let it also be our hope for all others. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our eyes. Let us be kingdom builders at Morning Hour Chapel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning we are going to um, have communion. We didn't have communion in January because there was a little bit of snow on the ground and we couldn't get to church. But we are going to commemorate uh, the Last Supper this morning. We do this on the first Sunday of every month. Um, and as we consider what communion means, consider that we are taking part in truth. Jesus Christ came to earth as a human being. He left all of his godness behind to come to earth. He lived among us. He taught us. He healed us. And then he died so that we might know God. So that we might know his truth, the only truth there is. As we consider communion this morning, consider that truth. And consider the truth that Jesus died. His body was broken. His blood was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I want to invite you to partake in communion. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask that you don't. I'm also going to give an opportunity for a few seconds of prayer. If you have unforgiven sin in your life, Take this time and pray that God will forgive you because we should not approach this table without first being right with God, without having forgiveness. After we pray, uh, I'm going to call the deacons to come forward to serve. Um, if you've not been here for communion before, we just come down the center aisle in two lines. We receive the bread and the cup and we return to our seats and then we'll all partake together. Um, and 
as we're doing that, as you guys are coming forward, uh, our head deacon, Linda, uh, will be on this side of the church. I will be on this side of the church. If there's anything that you would like prayer for, uh, prayer for healing, prayer for help, uh, please come by and see us. We'll pray for you. But let's take a few moments and prepare our hearts. On the night before he died, Jesus gathered with his closest friends, including one who would end up betraying him. And he had supper with them. And he told them that he had longed to have this supper with them for a long time. He shared with them several things. He shared with them the practice of foot washing, that we should never be above our master, and if our master washes feet, then we should wash feet that we should care for one another that much. And he also introduced the bread and the cup as representative of his body and his blood. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it. He prayed to God over the bread. And then he broke it and passed it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. This is my body that is broken for you. And do this often, and every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. That is why we take the body of Christ. After supper, Jesus took wine. And we don't often think about what the wine signifies. Yes, we know that Jesus said that the wine is the new covenant in his blood, and that it was shed for the forgiveness of sins. But... The wine, wine was always used for medicinal purposes, for healing purposes in that culture. And when Jesus gave us the wine, when he gave us his blood for the forgiveness of sins, he was looking to heal our relationship with God. He was looking to have the brokenness repaired. And that is why he took the cup and he prayed to God over it as well. Then he passed it to his disciples and he said, drink this. This blood is the new covenant in my, in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of many. Do this often and every time you do it, remember me. The blood of Jesus Christ. After supper... After Judas left, after the bread was eaten, after the wine was drunk, the disciples went out into the night singing. And that is what we are going to do this morning. When we know the truth that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that He wants us to be with the Father, and when we know the truth that the Father's heart is love, and that it is love that pours out on every person, we should want every person to know Him. We should want every person to be a part of the kingdom of God. Pray, study, ask God where you can help to build His kingdom. His kingdom is not made of bricks. His kingdom is made of people. People who have repented, people who have turned back to Him. God bless you this week.